All right, well, today uh, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. If you're new to our series, we're walking through doctrines and what the Bible teaches us about uh, what to believe. And if you're new to the series, you'll know that, or you'll, you wouldn't know, but we are going off of the premise that this is true. So I'm not here necessarily trying to convince you that this is truth. We're kind of saying, if we believe this, if I'm a follower of Jesus, what does the Bible teach me about Jesus, God, the scriptures, doctrine of man and sin, Holy Spirit, church, heaven and hell? These are the things that we're going through. What does the Bible say about these things? And so that's, for a lot of us, new information. Maybe we said yes to following Jesus, but we're actually learning what the Bible teaches us about these different doctrines, and that is kind of the hope. And for some of us, these are reinforcements or reminders of the important things that the Bible teaches. Now, the way that we're doing it, I'm teaching the doctrine portion, and then we've had different people come up each week to share why is this good news. So today, Celeste will be sharing why the Holy Spirit is good news. Celeste always gets a holler. I walked up here after Ryan invited me up here, and there was like half a... Uh, a grunt, and Celeste always gets a holler. So um, one of the things that can happen in our thinking, if we just do like a, a brief scan of the Bible, sometimes we can think that God was Old Testament God. He was just kind of Yahweh God, and then something happens in the New Testament, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit enter the scene, and it's like, okay, now we've got a more robust picture of who God is. That would be a, we've walked through this for a bunch of weeks. That's not the way that the Bible presents who God is. The Bible presents God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is developed throughout the Old and New Testament. But it's this picture of God who exists in three persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity that we talked about. Now, just to be totally truthful, and we've talked about this also, that language of the Trinity didn't develop until a couple hundred years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And for some people, that's a little bit uncomfortable. Like, all right, this doctrine stuff sort of takes shape over time. Uh, that's weird. Why didn't they all just talk about it right away? But the reality is the scriptures present, here's what God teaches us. And then the people that study that and the churches try and apply language to it. And so the, the language that's been applied to the Trinity, and you might be familiar with this, but we have one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's people that have studied the scriptures and seen how the scriptures have portrayed God to us, communicated God to us, and applied some language to it to try and help us understand what does that mean. We believe in one God, and that God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we've walked through this idea of God and, and what the Bible teaches about God. We've walked through the idea of the Son and what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And today we're, we're walking through the Holy Spirit and what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. So I want to share a couple of passages. The Holy Spirit has been a part of God's story for a long time. He had anticipated the coming of the Messiah, and through that, he promises the Holy Spirit. And so I want to show you a couple of Old Testament passages that speak to this coming Spirit. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Isaiah 32, 15 through 17 says, Until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high, 
and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. This promise that the Holy Spirit is going to transform the experience of the life of a believer. Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land. Yes and amen. You can say amen to that. And streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When you see these passages, you see that that from a long time ago, God was saying, something is going to happen, and I am going to unite my spirit to your person. I want to send the Holy Spirit to fill your life. That was part of God's objective for the life of a believer. Now, what can happen if we're not careful is we start to think that the end game of being a Christian is heaven. In fact, many of you might have even been presented the gospel, but like somebody asked you the question, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And you start to think about that, and it's like, okay, so heaven or hell? Like, there's, there's choices here. I, if I say yes to Jesus, I go to heaven. If I say no to Jesus, I go to hell. We will talk about a doctrine of heaven and hell in a couple of weeks. If you're like, I want to know the answer to that question, we'll come in a couple of weeks. But so often, that's our portrayal, and then life here ends up being this afterthought. Like, our whole objective is to get to heaven and life on earth is the preamble or the misery that you have to live through. For some of us, maybe we look at it from a difficult point of view. The misery that we have to live through to get to paradise. But God's promise has a very different feel to it. God's actually looking ahead. He knows Jesus is coming. He knows salvation is coming. And he's saying, I am going to unite you with my spirit. And that's part of the story of redemption. That's part of the good news. There's a, a moment where Jesus, he has, uh, if you were with us last week, Rob taught on salvation. And salvation is pegged to the finished work of Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross. Rob talked about some big words, propitiation, what took place on the cross, that God poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. And then there's this resurrection that indicates new life, that Jesus is a first fruits, and we are going to be raised to walk in the newness of life with Jesus. That's our salvation. So after Jesus died on the cross and rose again and spent 40 days with the disciples as he's preparing to ascend into heaven, he says this in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus after salvation has been accomplished, said, now wait for the promise from the Father. In other words, God has more for you than salvation. Salvation is a major part of God's redemptive story. That's why we taught it last week. It is a huge objective that God would redeem humanity. But if our whole view is that this Christian life is for what happens in eternity and there's nothing for today, we're actually missing what the Bible teaches. One of the ways that we know that is that if you were to say yes to following Jesus and the entire story was salvation, it would make sense 
that God would swoop you up into heaven the moment you say yes to Jesus. Like the minute you say, I believe, you would be in heaven. Done. Eternity in paradise with God forever. That would even feel like a pretty good evangelism plan, right? If you're sitting next to somebody and they say yes to following Jesus and they're just gone and you're like, yeah, I could, I could go for that too. That sounds like a good idea. But God actually has a different story that he's writing where he is bringing his presence into this earth to fill the earth with his presence by putting his spirit in the lives of believers in every corner of the earth. So what we're going to talk about today, three big things. The first thing we're going to talk about is that the Bible views the spirit as God. Okay, this is a really important understanding that the, the Bible talks about the spirit as God. So when we talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we are believing that the Spirit is fully God. We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that the Spirit is in you? We're going to understand the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then what does the Spirit do? We're going to talk about three things that the Spirit does. That he empowers, he encourages, and he equips us for life as followers of Jesus here and now. Next week, we'll be talking about the doctrine of sanctification that's being made more like Jesus, and the Spirit plays a major role in our sanctification, so we will end up talking about more of the Spirit's work next week as it relates to how He changes us. All right, so you guys ready? If you have something to take notes on, I do recommend just being able to write some of these things down because it is uh, a lot of scriptures that we'll be going through. Uh, so let's talk about the Spirit being fully God. Uh, our friend Wayne Grudem, who wrote Systematic Theology, we're quoting him a lot in this series because it's a really thick book and he says a lot of things. Uh, he writes this. He says, But after Jesus ascended into heaven and continuing through the entire church age, the Holy Spirit is now the primary manifestation of the presence of the Trinity among us. He is the one who is most prominently present with us now. So as we look at the work of Jesus, we believe that God is always God. Always the Father, always the Son, always the Spirit. He doesn't move from one to the other. He is always God the Father, always God the Son, and always God the Holy Spirit. One of the great places that we see this is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Uh, this is Jesus' baptism. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In this beautiful moment, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit simultaneously presented in the Scriptures. Jesus in the waters of baptism, the Spirit descending like a dove onto the person of Jesus, and the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And in that, again, back to that language that a couple hundred years later, people were trying to say, how do we understand this? We believe in one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we see them on full display in the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit is part of this Trinitarian belief of who God is. We see it again in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. This is Luke telling us a story and giving us a lot of theology in the midst of this story. It says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. You'll need to remember all those cities for the quiz. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
Okay, so just note that. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I want you to hear that the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus are synonyms in the Bible. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That last line, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The disciples, as they carried out the commands of Jesus, when they heard from the Holy Spirit, were fully under the belief that God was speaking to them. They view the Holy Spirit as God. They view the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. And this is a really important one. John 14, verses 15 through 17 say this. Jesus is talking, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Listen to this part. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What Jesus is saying to the disciples in this moment is the Spirit is going to come and he's going to dwell with you and you're going to recognize him because you're seeing him in me. He's here now and he's going to be in you. So in this, we see this wild connection of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is teaching that the Father will send the Holy Spirit who will be the presence of God in all believers. And he's going to look like and sound like and feel like Jesus because they're not so distinct that Jesus is like, yeah, the Father's going to send you a helper. I don't know that guy. He's going to feel really different than me. That's not how this is communicated. It's going to feel like what I have brought because it's one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one God. So you're going to recognize him because he's with you and he's going to be in you. So the Bible teaches us this understanding and helps us to walk in this reality that the Spirit is God. And as you understand that, it should prepare you to have your mind blown by this doctrine of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the teaching of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit indwells, resides in a follower of Jesus. And with that, you have the presence of God with you at all times. To understand this, we're going to look at three words to just try and teach us this indwelling concept of the Holy Spirit. So the first one is the word sealed from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Now, if you were to read Ephesians chapter 1, have you ever had one of those bites of steak that takes you about 35 minutes to get through? Like, it just, you really have to chew on this thing for a while. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of those kind of pieces of meat. It you could chew on this thing for hours, for, day, for months. You could spend time processing through the doctrine that's taught in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to tell you two verses, and they are loaded, these verses. It says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now that is profound. Paul's teaching us that when you believed in Jesus, something happened to you. And this is the language that he uses. He says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now I use this motion for sealed because that word is drawn from a specific word picture. 
Uh, let's use Caesar as an example. When Caesar would have an order, he would write it down on his papyrus or whatever he would write and fold it, and then he would take wax and seal the envelope closed or seal the papyrus closed with Caesar's unique symbol. Nobody had that seal but Caesar, and that would indicate that it was truly from him. And that's the word that Paul uses about the Holy Spirit. He says that when you came to faith in Jesus, God stamped you with his Holy Spirit, sealed you with his Holy Spirit. So that when you, look at the implications of being sealed with the Holy Spirit, when you go to receive your inheritance, the thing that God looks for is the Holy Spirit. Because he is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now just, let's play this out for a little bit. I don't know what picture you have in your mind of the pearly gates or heaven or that kind of thing. I'm sure there's a, a lot of bad theology that we'll have to sort out in a couple weeks. But let's say that you go to stand before God and he's determining whether you come into heaven or don't go to heaven. According to this passage, the thing that God is looking for is not your works, not whether you did enough good to outweigh the bad. He is looking for the Holy Spirit. He's not looking for proximity to Christians. Did you spend time in a church or at a Christian school or did you go to homeschool? Did you learn Latin and you can memorize scriptures in Latin? Does, he's not looking for any of those things. He's looking for, do you have the seal of the Holy Spirit on your life? If you do, you get the inheritance. If you don't, you do not receive the inheritance. So now let's play this out a little further. If you were to look around the world at all of the Christians, what percentage of Christians on the planet do not have the Holy Spirit? It's a big fat zero. What this means is that there is not a single Christian on planet Earth that does not have the Holy Spirit stamped on their life, on their person. 100% of the followers of Jesus that exist on this planet, have the presence of God on their life, in their person, sealed on them. I'm saying that really emphatically because we have to know and believe that 100% of Christians have the Holy Spirit. So now the next question is, if you were to go around the world at all the churches, would you find people that don't have the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. Because proximity to church or participation in a gathering is not the point of salvation. Paul talks about this. When you believed in him, Jesus, the gospel of your salvation, that's when you were stamped with the Holy Spirit. That's the mark that, that at that point, God gives you his Holy Spirit never to be taken away. That is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as it relates to being sealed. Okay? So just keep that in your mind. Everywhere you go, the Spirit goes with you. You have the Holy Spirit at all times. The presence of God abides in you. Now, we're going to go to a second word that Paul uses to help us understand this, and the word is temple. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. One of the things that Paul's doing to help us understand this is he's helping us use language to try and understand what has taken place. 
So a little bit of background on this. I'm currently doing a very aggressive reading plan, trying to read through the Bible in 88 days. It's a lot. I don't fully recommend it. I'm just trying it out. But I just went through Exodus, and it spends a lot of time working through all the details of the building of the tabernacle. Anybody have a little bit of a hard time getting through all the, the barrels and the amethysts and, the, and the, going through just the things, the details of the tabernacle? It is a lot. But when you look at it, one of the things that happens is you see that the materials themselves are not holy. There's nothing about the canvas that's used to build the tabernacle that's considered holy. But what we find is that the tabernacle becomes holy when the presence of God rests on it. And if you read through Exodus, you see it comes like a cloud and sits on top of the tabernacle and fills the inside of it. And actually, there's a place inside the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies where the presence of God goes to sit on the Ark of the Covenant on what's called the mercy seat as a part of the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God rests there on that place. That, the presence of God in the tabernacle, is what has made it holy. So Paul says, do you not know you are God's temple and his spirit dwells in you. So what Paul's saying is that what we used to experience, that temple, that is not where the presence of God is anymore. What Jesus accomplished has paved the way for you to be the temple of God and his spirit, his presence dwells in you in the same way that the spirit landed on the tabernacle and on the temple. That is what it means for the spirit to be sealed on you. You have the Holy Spirit. You are a temple. Now, Paul will play that out. And that 1 Corinthians 6 is Paul talking about sexual immorality. And he's saying, why would you use your body for something immoral? Don't you realize that you have the, the presence of God? As a follower of Jesus, you contain the presence of the Most High God. That should impact your decision-making. That should affect how you live your life. This is why the Ezekiel passage says we're not talking about laws written on tablets of stone. We're not just in this for the, the Ten Commandments anymore that you would have rules to live by. We're in this because the Spirit of God is in you and he is causing you to realize that you are now a temple. You're going to make different decisions in this life knowing that God's presence dwells in your person. And you are made holy by the presence of God living in you. This is a major reality. You are a temple of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God in you. The third word we're going to look at is the word baptized. Acts chapter 1 verse 5 Jesus told the disciples to go and wait for the promise of the Father, saying, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, the language of baptism of the Holy Spirit has been uh, kind of debated for a lot of years. And people have asked the question, uh, is there, we get sealed with the Holy Spirit, and then maybe later on we get baptized with the Holy Spirit? Like, what are we talking about here? And to give you just a brief overview, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the word baptism, baptizo in the Greek, means immersed. If you were baptized, uh, many of you would have been baptized in some body of water, uh, maybe a tub like what we do out here, or a river, or a lake, or a pool, and you go under the, the water, and then you're brought back up, and that's to symbolize that you died together with Jesus, and you're being buried, 
And then you're raised up to walk in the newness of life, and you're brought out of the waters representing new life in Christ. Okay, so you're, the, the reason that we go under the waters, the word baptizo means immersed. Now, some of you might have been sprinkled with water before, and that's honestly historic Christianity. They, they would look for pools of water, and if they couldn't find pools of water, they'd go get a, like a cup, and they would pour it on you. If they didn't have a cup, then they would grab water out of a thing and just splash it on you. Like They, just, they went to whatever they had access to to symbolize the, the work of the Holy Spirit and, and raising us up to walk in the newness of life, the finished work of Jesus, and being raised to walk in the newness of life. And so that those baptisms, by the way, we would say they're legitimate baptisms, and historic Christianity has used different means to baptize people based on what they had access to, what water they had access to. I bring all this up because I want you to hear that what Jesus promised is that you will be immersed with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, and I didn't add this to the, uh, to the list of scriptures, but in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What we find is that the Spirit is sealed on our lives and that as believers, there will be times where we are filled up for special ministry moments or opportunities to bless or to carry out the commands of Christ, or to minister, we're filled up to carry out the purposes of Jesus. And so there's this moment that we would look at and say, we have the Holy Spirit, and then God will fill us up with his Holy Spirit to minister to people in increased ways or power or opportunity that carries out. And throughout the book of Acts, we'll see people where it says, and they were full of the Holy Spirit, or filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the gospel or they heal somebody, or they go into a new place and lay the groundwork for a new church. And these things happen by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is getting at with Acts chapter 1, 5, when he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to talk about the work of the Spirit. Okay, so that's the indwelling presence. All believers always have the Spirit that goes with them everywhere they go. Every single one of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do in your life? Three words, and I don't always alliterate, but we have empower, we have encourage, and we have equip. And these are three things that you can just think of how the Holy Spirit is going to work in your life. So the first one is the word empower. This passage in Acts 1-8 is Jesus commissioning the disciples, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power. Saying, look, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there is going to be a power to minister that you don't have without the Holy Spirit. You're going to have more to carry out the commands of Christ. More power to do the work. And this is a really important thing because the task of being followers of Jesus requires more than we have to give. You might have heard Babu and Savitri up here sharing their story. They've given their lives for the last 28 years I don't know if you caught everything that they said, to having 215 children live in their home that they raised and fed and taught in school and taught them the gospel and sent them out into the world as adults ready to serve Jesus and to be productive in this world. 215. Now you hear that and you just think, oh, and by the way, in Nepal, they don't allow orphanages, so Babu and Sabitri have had to adopt 215 children into their life. It's their home. 
And on top of that, 18 churches that Babu teaches them how to understand the Bible and how to teach the Bible. He funds them, gives them salaries. They come to his house once a month. They get a big meal. And they get a chance to be taught the gospel and understand. They take it back out to these rural villages. I've gone with Babu on the back of not his motorcycle, but one of his friends. I was sitting third on the back of the motorcycle. It was terrifying, by the way. I had about that much room and fingers to hold on. Very bumpy road. Not related to the Holy Spirit, just telling you that story. And we'll go out, out to the outer reaches. And in addition to that, he leads a church in Hetoda, a major city, in, in, uh, not in India, near India, in Nepal. And on top of that, they're in this Bible school, raising up seminary students and Bible school students, teaching them the gospel. Anybody else feel inadequate when you hear Babu and Savitri talk? You hear this, and it's just like, that is not my life. I get tired after an afternoon coffee with one person, and they tell me about their life. Like, I, I'm not sure that I have what they have. That's not the case. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and gives life to your mortal bodies. That's Romans chapter 8. The same spirit that allowed Babu and Sabitri to adopt 215 children is in you to carry out the work that Jesus has for you to do. And you hear, you read biographies. If you've ever read any biographies about Christian leaders or ministers or people that go and do these amazing things or you hear somebody talk and you're just like, that's not me. It is you. It is you. The same power, the same spirit that equipped and empowered those people to do those things is in you. Okay, the second one is that the Spirit encourages. Uh, this is Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9 comes right after Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 starts with, And a great persecution arose, and they were all scattered. The church in Jerusalem, there had been one church since Jesus had uh, commissioned everybody. One church in Jerusalem blew up because there was persecution, and everybody scattered. Everybody went. They went to Rome. They went to Colossae. They went to Antioch. They went all over the empire, but they weren't in Jerusalem. Everybody except the apostles left. And the Spirit comforted them in this persecution. The Spirit ministers to us, gives us courage in moments of great trial. How does the Spirit comfort us? I'm going to tell you just two verses to talk about how the Spirit comforts us. One is in Romans 5.5. 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, it's usually a terrible situation, but some of us uh, have had ports installed if we have some kind of medication that needs to be uh, administered to us uh, a lot over time. And you get these, you know, kind of like a, so they don't have to keep putting new uh, IVs in you. You'll get a port and they'll tape it down and they can just access that over and over and over. You might be familiar with this. What Paul's saying in Romans 5.5 5 is that the Holy Spirit has been installed in you like a port for the love of God. That God communicates his love to you by the Holy Spirit that he has placed in you, meaning there's never a moment in your existence when you do not have the Spirit of God in you who can and will remind you of the love of God. He speaks God's love 
into your life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. This is how he encourages us, is he tells us of the love of God or reveals to us the love of God. The next passage is also in Romans chapter 8. Sorry, let me turn there because I didn't tell Melody that Romans 8 was going to be on there. Okay, this is Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness, tells us that we are children of God. The enemy will try to rob you of your identity in Christ. He will whisper into your ear, did God really say that? That's what the enemy does. He tries to undercut at every turn. Are you sure? Are you sure you're a child of God? And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that you are a child of God. He says, that is wrong. You are a child of God. The Spirit encourages us by speaking identity over our lives and reminding us of what is true in Christ. Last one, and I'll hustle through this and hand over to Celeste, is equip. The Spirit equips us. John 16, 13 through 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Spirit equips us by showing us what is true. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I have said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit teaches us the things of Christ, reminds us of what's true, and illuminates God's voice in our minds. Now, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 4. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. The next thing that the church does to equip us is to give gifting that we use to build up the body of Christ. A little bit further down in verses 8 through 11. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the Spirit manifests himself in our lives through gifting that builds up the body of Christ. Paul writes this, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another, an utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to dis distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit comes into our lives and gives gifting that then you can contribute to the body of Christ to build it up for the common good. By the Spirit, you have contribution into the lives of others to minister to them and help them see Jesus more clearly. I'm going to bring Celeste up here, and she's going to tell you why this is good news. Celeste, come on up. Hello, everyone. Um, for anybody who doesn't know me, I'm Celeste, and I've been at Anthem now, I think, for eight years, and I am absolutely horrible at introductions, so come see me out in the lobby later if you want to talk. Um, over the last couple of weeks, 
after I said yes to talking about the Holy Spirit, I was just praying and thinking and jotting down different thoughts on why would we say that the Holy Spirit is good news? And everything that I thought of just kind of came back to one main point, and I'll share that. The Holy Spirit is good news because he enables us to be the people that we can't be on our own. I'll say that again. The Holy Spirit is good news because he enables us to be the people we can't be on our own. Matt shared a passage from Ezekiel that talks about the Spirit. He put his Spirit in us so that we can walk in obedience to him during our time here on this earth, which is such amazing news. The fact that the Lord loves us so much that he, before Jesus even came to earth to bring us salvation, he had already planned okay, and I'm also going to give you the help that you need to carry out my commands in your everyday life. I want you to imagine what if when you made that commitment to Jesus, this is the kind of response that he would have towards you. Okay, great. They finally believed in me. Welcome to the family, everybody. Now, go out there and figure out how to be obedient to me and to be that new creation that I told you to be. Peace out. Thank goodness God doesn't do that. He has equipped us with some, someone to be with us at every moment so that we can walk in obedience to him and please him on this earth. And that's fantastic news. Uh, let's turn to Galatians 5, through 23. Some of you for sure know this passage, but it's just a short list of some of the things that happens when we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. The word fruit um, in this passage is referring to the evidences or the results of the Spirit in us. And it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Have you ever heard that list or are you reading it and hearing it now? Just think, yeah, there's no way that's, that's me. Or maybe you've heard things like, love your enemies, or rejoice in the Lord always. And one of my personal favorites, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And you think, there, yeah, there's no way. There's absolutely no way I can live that kind of life. And you would be right in thinking that. There is no way that you and I, as human beings, can do that in and of ourselves. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in us to transform our hearts and minds to live out the way that he wants us to. And he does. It's not that we just need it. He actually does that for us. One of the things that I find so fascinating about the Holy Spirit is that he shows up in a variety of different ways. Um, he's always pointing us to Jesus. His main goal is always going to be pointing you back to Jesus. But he does it in so many different ways. He reveals his presence in us in many different facets of life. And I'll just take a few minutes of your time to share a few of those stories that I've seen in the scriptures and also in my life of how the Holy Spirit's been at work. Some are more on the more miraculous side, and some of them maybe on the prophetic side, um, and some are just wild moments like, wow, God, you, you did some crazy stuff. So let's go to the scriptures first. Let's turn to Acts 7. And I'll give you a little context um, before we get there. Back in chapter 6, we meet this guy named Stephen. And Stephen is known in the scriptures 
as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So this is the context of this guy that we're about to talk, talk about. He was somebody full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And down in chapter 7, we learn that he is in a town and he preaches a sermon about Jesus and the gospel. And the people there, the religious leaders who were there, were angry. They were actually not receptive. They didn't like the story. And they turned to violence against him. They were so angry with him that they decided, we're going to throw him out and stone him. And for anybody who doesn't know what stoning is in the Bible, it's the process of taking literal stones or large rocks and throwing it at someone as a form of capital punishment. And they would do this to death. So this is the context that we're about to read this passage in, that something very violent is happening to this man who just shared the gospel, who just shared what he believes to the people around him. This is what he says uh, right before he is stoned to death. We read this in Acts 7, 50, 59 through 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's reaction in this moment is nothing that could just be drudged up by sheer willpower. There's no way that you can say, okay, don't hold their sin against him after I've been wrongfully, wrongfully used here, wrongfully um, stoned. I have been... <laughs> had this terrible injustice against me, but he, he has the compassion of the, Holy, of the Lord because the Holy Spirit revealed to him what was needed in these people's lives. He knew his life meant nothing when he got to go be with Jesus. He wasn't worried about saving his own life um, to the point where he would forego sharing the gospel story, where he would go and actually be ugly or mean to these people who were being rude to him to the point of death. And I think that is an incredible story just to see how the Holy Spirit showed up in his life. Another story uh, that I really enjoy is from the Old Testament. It's in the book of Exodus, and Matt was just sharing about the tabernacle and the list of instructions and rules that the Lord gave about this place of worship, and he gives a lot um, but in that, he don't, not only gives the details and the instructions on how to build this temple and how to fill the tabernacle with all these different things, he equips people to do it. So in Exodus 31, 1 through 5, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, See that I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God with the ability and the intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and carving wood for the work in every craft. So God called by name this man. I don't know who, if he had any other significance, we don't hear him mentioned again, in other, any other context, but him along with the other few other people, the Lord equipped, he put his spirit in these people with the abilities to carry out these things that he wanted, the skills that they needed to build these different, very intricate little pieces um, that they use for worship and very big pieces that they use for worship, which is so awesome. The Lord will give you 
the things that you need to carry out the things that he asks. And you, so you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about, okay, you gave me this assignment. Now I can't do it. He's got your back. So let's switch gears a little bit. I just said he's got your back. You may have been asking, does the Holy Spirit actually show up today? Or is it just stories of old and stories of biblical times? He does. I'll share a couple of stories from my personal life. Um, one is in the more ordinary space and one is more in the prophetic, but both are showing the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit um, at work in my own life. So story number one, I have a friend who every time I see her, she's just one of those people that you're like, I want their life. You know, those people that you're, they have it all together. They seem to have everything. They seem to have never any problems. And every time I would see her, I would have this, not fit of jealousy, but I would really be battling with feeling jealous thoughts. Didn't really have a, a enjoyable time being with her. I mean, I wanted to be with her, but it would always kind of plague me, this jealousy feeling that I would have. So I started praying. I would start feeling guilty for feeling jealous. Started praying, asking the Lord, Lord, just help me to love her. I know your word says that love isn't envious, and I am not feeling the love right now, so you got to help me. Just help me stop being jealous. I don't want this. So as I was praying, the Holy Spirit started doing something in me. He started turning my mind to thankfulness, bringing passages to my mind to be thankful for the things that he's already done for me, to praise him for the things he's done. And when I first started having those thoughts in the middle of those moments of jealousy, I did not understand what was going on. I was very confused, actually. Like, why am I having these moments of now needing to be thankful when I just want to stop being jealous? Lord, just help me stop being jealous. And for some reason, I'm thinking about being thankful. Um, I didn't understand what the Holy Spirit was doing. I didn't understand that he was turning my mindset away from me being jealous, me thinking about the things that I wanted or I didn't have by giving me passages of thankfulness, giving me passages of singing praises to him. I think the fight against jealousy can sometimes seem like one of those things that, okay, if I've become a Christian, I've given my life to, to Christ, it's one of those basic Christian things that I should be able to do by myself. And that's not true. The Holy Spirit still has to work out those things in us. He still is the one who equips us to be his people to carry out those amazing things that he's called us to do, love, joy, peace, all those different things. He still has to work that out in us. It's not something we get to do on our own. Um, one of the other stories actually happened a couple years ago at the beginning of 2020. Um, so sorry to bring that back up. But um, the, during the lockdowns, you know, we didn't have much to do. And I would take walks in, uh, around in my neighborhood and just ask the Lord, Lord, give me something to pray for. Um, I know there's a pandemic going on, but I like specific prayers. I like to be able to actually take things to him specifically. So I was asking this of the Lord, and one day before I left the house, he just said, okay, for the next two weeks, I want you to pray for every single person that you pass by. Like, great, I can totally do that. Easy. So the first day happens, go outside. I'm walking by this woman, and I'm about to pray for her, and like, Instantly, the Lord just says, okay, this woman is dealing with sickness. She is really scared. The doctors don't know what to do. Nobody knows about it. 
you need to pray for her. And I was kind of stunned because it felt like she had told me her story as I'm walking by her. I mean, it was that kind of moment. And I kind of looked at her, and she kind of looked at me, and then I'm like, okay, let me just pray for you. Um, but it wasn't like I felt like I needed to stop her and pray for her. It was just a moment for me to actually pray into what was going on in her life. I had someone else that was passing by a man with his dog, just walking his dog, and the Lord, again, just this instant download of information about these strangers. He's struggling with his marriage. His family is broken. He is at his wit's end, and he's ready to end it today. You need to pray for him. So on and on for the next 14 days, that's what I had. I had that opportunity to go and intercede for these people. And it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me getting to pray for them, getting to pray with them at all. It was about me just lifting them up and the Holy Spirit revealing himself to me even in those moments. I'm giving you what to pray for because you asked. Um, That was just such an incredible experience for me to be able to intercede on behalf of these people who were really going through some crazy stuff. And if they were to walk into this room today, I wouldn't know who they are. I don't, I don't remember. I remember the stories. I don't remember what they looked like. And that, again, is just evidence to me that the Holy Spirit was doing that for his purposes and not for me. So that's all I have. I know there's many more stories um, to share, many more stories that you guys have. There's many stories in the Bible that you can read and look up. But I really hope that just the little bit that you got to hear today just shows you how amazing the Holy Spirit is, what good news he is to us. And it's not just a history lesson, but it's something that we get to interact with and experience today.